Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, the Ram the father of Aminabad, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham was the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us.
When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we live on this side of that story. We thank you that generation of generation was filled with longing and anticipation that one day all the promises of God would be fulfilled in the one suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about that would come and bear on his own shoulders the sins of the world, that would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, upon whom the chastisement that brings us peace would be placed. We thank you, Lord, that we don't look forward to that. We look back to it, Lord. We are among those who have been redeemed by faith and trust in his name. So, Lord, we ask now that you would stir our hearts again. God, our hearts are so prone to complacency and apathy and, and just, uh, God, just, just setting our minds and souls on cruise control through this season. And Lord, I pray that you would rouse us, that you would awaken us, Lord God, to the wonder and majesty of your incarnation once again. And that we would see it and that we would revel in it and we would rejoice in it. That our eyes would weep tears of joy as we think about what you have done to rescue us from our own sin, from death, from the devil himself. We thank you, Lord. That you are God. Now, God, we ask that you would divinely equip us to hear the word of God as it is breathed out by the very mouth of God. And though you would enable me, Lord, to preach it effectively and accurately, God, and in a way that glorifies you. Thank you for all of this, Lord. We are acknowledging in this moment our full dependence on you, God. Without you, you said in the book of John, we can do nothing. And there's no other place where we're more aware of that than in the, in the, the presence of the majesty of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Who can recite that back to me from memory? It's a lot of names, isn't it? It's a lot of names. It's interesting to me that um, when Matthew presents the story of Jesus to the Jewish world, you got to understand there's four Gospels, four life stories of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and each one of them is written in a different context, same story, different context to different audience. Matthew, as Tom said last week, is the most Jewish of those four books. He, he references Old Testament scriptures a lot. And, and so when he wants to present the story of Jesus, a, a man who he walked with, a man who called him out of his own darkness to follow him, and he wants to present this story, he begins with a genealogy. Now this is not the only genealogy of Jesus in the Bible. There's also one in the book of Luke. But even more importantly, it's not the only genealogy in the Bible. If you went to the Old Testament, 
especially a book like First Chronicles and some of the, the books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you would find long, long lists of names. And, and while we might be tempted to just hit the fast forward button and skip over those, those are all there for a very important reason. You see, from the beginning of the Jewish nation, detailed genealogies were kept for a very important reason. They were there to establish a person's heritage, their inheritance, their legitimacy, their rights. And it's interesting to me that the word genealogy, that, that Matthew says this is the genealogy, of the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that Greek word for genealogy is Genesis. Genesis is a word, a Greek word, that means beginning. Most of you would know that that is why the first book of the Bible is called Genesis. That book records the beginning of creation. It includes the origin of the universe, of the earth, of mankind. It includes the origin of a story of human sin and with the promise of redemption by God. Genesis also introduces us to this concept of, of a people of God set apart from others to be God's very own possession. All of that is, is encapsulated. Genesis is the book of many beginnings. And similarly, after getting through the, the books of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, we come to Matthew 1. And Matthew says, this is a brand new Genesis. It's a story of, even though there already is a creation, it's a story of a brand new beginning for all of creation. It's, it's this redemption of mankind that has been promised and prophesied. It's now at the threshold. And, and a king, a brand new king named Jesus, is set to establish once and for all a brand new kingdom. In fact, it will be the very kingdom of God right here on earth. And all of this, all of it, is introduced and summed up by a lengthy genealogy, the one that Paul read for us earlier. Just as a side note, I called Paul, texted him this week, and I said, Hey, buddy, will you be my text reader this week? He said, Absolutely. I said, You might want to let me send you the text before you agree. And he still said yes. He's a great guy. So we read this genealogy, and it not only details Jewish history, but it lets us know what all of history is truly about. See, history is not primarily the story of Genghis Khan or the Greeks and the Romans or how Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. The centerpiece of all human history is Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. From the Garden of Eden... Tom talked about this very well last week, as, as Caleb indicated. From the Garden of Eden, there was this promise made that the seed of the woman, in, in mysterious language, and I'm sure Adam and Eve standing there listening to this had no clue what it meant. They said the seed of the woman would someday rise to crush the head of the serpent. And all the priests... And the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to that coming day. Every nation and king during the history of the Old Testament, whether they were good kings or bad kings, they were unwittingly a tool that God used to move this story along until all the promises, every one of them, was fulfilled at a bloody cross in an empty tomb. 
And history was marching forward, and it was marching forward to an apex that would be found only in Christ Jesus. Galatians 4 makes this point very well. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, everything, it was like this volcanic, this Vesuvian eruption. All of history was building to this eruption of grace that would happen on Calvary. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's what history is all about. And since the day of fulfillment, though some have rejected and still reject, and some have accepted and still accept the reality of it, all of history is placed in context by the response of men and women like you and I to the promises that have been fulfilled in Christ and the redemption that God has granted through Him. And Matthew's genealogy is also very significant to the Jews, or would have been significant to the Jews, in another way. See, the heading in verse 1 says that Jesus was the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now, we might read those names, and if you have even just a modicum of biblical literacy, you might read those names and you might think vaguely, of a couple of Old Testament characters. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Uh, you might think of David slaying Goliath or some, some story like that. But see, when, when Matthew tells the Jewish nation that Jesus was the son of Abraham and the son of David, um, his, the, Christ's connection to them, if Matthew could prove that, would be most important to, to Jews who were reading this. See, Abraham was told by God, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That means they're taken over. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. To announce that Jesus is the son of Abraham meant this, that all the promises associated with Abraham's offspring were about to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. After centuries of waiting, it was all about to happen. Everything was about to be fulfilled in Christ. It was a promise that his family would be as numerous as the sand of the seashore, not limited to the borders of a tiny Middle Eastern country. And, and that that means that the Gentiles, you and I, would one day be included in the people of God. You don't understand because you've grown up, many of you in church, or you've kind of come into this thing on this side of history. You don't understand what a big deal that was. That you, people who who uh, Paul says were once alienated from the promises, have now been invited in to the promises, to the family of Abraham. They were promised that they would be victorious over their enemies, not left under the heel of other conquering empires like Rome and Babylon. And this is summed up in in this statement to Abraham. It's summed up in a promise that the nations of the earth, again, not just the Jews, but the nations of the earth, would be blessed in Abraham's offspring. Through Christ, these promises have been, are being, and will be fulfilled. Abraham's family 
right now includes everyone, not just the Jewish people, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. You are a son or a daughter of Abraham. Through Christ, we're victorious over our cruelest enemies, not just an invading power, but our cruelest enemies, the devil, sin, death. We have possessed the gate of our enemies. The gospel is now the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. It doesn't matter where you were born, what the color of your skin is, what your socioeconomic status is. If you trust in the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. You will be part of the people of God. You will be a son or a daughter of Abraham. To say... So get this, don't just read over that. To say that Christ is the son of Abraham means a lot. But Christ was also, according to Matthew, David's son. See, God did not only make promises to Abraham, He made promises to David too. Primarily this promise. He said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. David was, was Israel's most revered king. After the disaster that Saul was as a king, God rejected Saul, put in David, and he led the nation in godliness, and they succeeded and defeated all their enemies. And he was promised by God, because he was a man after God's own heart, that someone from his family would always reign. Always reign. But here's the problem. When Matthew is writing this, for almost 500 years, no heir of David had ruled. Something had happened in the promise. Now, raise your hand. Let's take a quick poll if you believe that God always keeps His promises. Raise your hand. But something had happened. 500 years, no heir of David had ruled. The people had sinned for decades, just kept just sinning right in the face of God for decades. And therefore God had sent them into exile for 70 years in Babylon. And when they returned from Babylon, they were oppressed by several empires, one right after the other, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And they had no king of their own. They just paid tribute to foreign kings. And so... Here's what I want you to hear. For Matthew to declare that Jesus was the son of David didn't mean that he was merely a descendant of the king, but that he was the son of David. That he was the one that everyone was waiting on who would return to the throne and reign forever in righteousness, fulfilling all of the covenant promises that God had made to his people so long ago. So after Jesus' lineage and his heritage are validated in this genealogy, son of Abraham, son of David, we're given a list of 42 names as landmarks of covenant history. Now this list, as you just read it, I know you're paying sharp attention, right? You could all quote it back to me. This list includes patriarchs, the founders of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It includes faithful Ruth, whose story is told in the book of Ruth. It includes kings like Solomon. And all of this, step by step, generation by generation, leading to Joseph, who would be known as Jesus' earthly father. And so what I want to do now is I want to take a closer look at some of the names on this list. And let's see what we can learn about them. So in order to do that, I want to begin 
where Matthew ends and maybe discuss one of the mysteries that you just read and kind of hopefully explain it a little bit. This is what Matthew says as he ends that list. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon into the Christ, 14 generations. Now what is the significance of these three sets of 14 names. First, you need to know that you are not the smartest person in the room if you just discovered that that, room, that that list has huge gaps in it. Everybody knows that. Everyone has acknowledged it. There's huge gaps in it. A couple of those gaps are of several hundred years. So when he says that it's 14 generations between those those segments he's not saying it's only or 14 generations between those segments he's not saying it's only 14 generations he's saying that those segments include those 14 generations this is not an error it's not an oversight on the part of matthew there are several reasons possible reasons maybe all of them maybe one of them but several reasons for the omissions first of all matthew is moving through the highlights of jewish history And he's not intending to give an exhaustive list. If Matthew had given an exhausted list, Paul would still be up here reading. And so, so he's not intending to do that. Let me explain it to you like that. If you were from a foreign country and just came here and I said, Hey, I know you have a president. Tell me about the, the, the presidency in America. I, I might tell you just highlights, mention Washington and Lincoln and Kennedy and Obama, but I would not mention President Garfield or President Fillmore. Most of you didn't even know those guys were president. So I wouldn't even mention them, just kind of skip over them. Um, and, and I would do that just to give you a quicker overview of 200 years of history. So that's the first reason. The second reason is, and that we see other examples of this throughout Jewish literature, is that sometimes these lists were edited or or summarized just to um, make them easier to memorize so people could, as I said, hit the highlights. But, but what I want you to focus on more is that it might have been an intentional, uh, symbolic symmetry that... that, that um, uh, Matthew was trying to, to summarize this and, and make it symmetrical in a way that would help you understand it. So in the complexity, now you got to understand that Jews and, Engl- and English-speaking people, the language of the Hebrews and, and oftentimes the meanings that are, that are lost on us is a lot more complex than, than us just sitting down and reading a story. So one of the things that in the complexity of Jewish thought they would assign a numeric value to the consonants in a word. Um, not the vowels, but the consonants. And that was called uh, gematria. So in gematria, David's name without the vowels would be DVD. Not like the media, but DVD. Now, D has a numeric value of 4, V as a numeric value of 6, and of course D, numeric value of 4. So what is 4 plus 6 plus 4? You didn't know there was going to be math this morning. 14. How many generations in each of those segments? 14. So there's 14 in David. So David's name is also the 14th on the list. What is Matthew doing? It seems that Matthew might be further emphasizing Christ's connection to the Davidic promises. 
He's saying, hey, look, this is important. He, this is the son of David. He is the king. He is going to reign. But also, this is something to me, you know, uh, uh, this is a little bit speculative, but it's, it's cool to me. Also consider another numerological pattern in this 14, 14, 14. There are six sets of seven in the number 42. Six is the number of man in Jewish thought. Anytime a man is represented by a number, it's the number six. And seven is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of perfection, and as such, it's associated with God. So I want you to see that Matthew may have been pointed to the fact that Jesus was perfectly man, six, yet he was also perfectly God, seven. See that? Isn't that cool? I like that. You may not, you can take that, do something with it, do nothing with it. I liked it. But we mustn't miss the main points. With all of that, you can get lost in the weeds on that. You mustn't miss the main points of Matthew's inclusion of this genealogy. First, as we also mentioned, it was to validate the legitimacy of Christ's lordship and his claim to David's throne based on the promises and covenants given to the Jewish fathers. He was the guy. There's not another guy coming. He is the guy. Second, it was to show that Christ, and this is very important, that Jesus Christ, why did they list out, he's the son of this guy, son of this guy, son of this guy, because it was to show you that Jesus Christ, unlike many of the gods of the pagans, was not a myth, and he was not a legend, but he was someone who was born into, and worked within, and supremely impacted actual human events. Look at the list of names. Look at them again. And seriously consider with me who is included in it. This is incredible to me. Think about that list of names. First, thing that always stands out to me is that this list of names includes five women. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you. The women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Bathsheba in the list is listed as Uriah's wife, but we know from the Old Testament that that's who she was. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now this fact that these five women are listed should be very, very encouraging about the heart of the gospel to you ladies. You know why? Because if you had lived in first century uh, Judaism, you would not have a lot of status or rights. And yet God, when he wants to say how this story was carried along, he includes five key women. I think that's pretty cool. Come on, ladies, help me out here. For example, in the first century, women were segregated from the men in the temple worship. You know who else was? Gentiles. So you would have had an equal status in first century Judaism as a Gentile. Their testimony was never considered credible in Jewish courts of law. If you saw a crime and you wanted to testify it, you would be the other opposing attorney could throw that out because you're just a woman. Don't throw rocks at me. I'm just telling you what history did. But then Jesus comes along. See, this is what really gets you excited. Jesus comes along in the middle of such a culture and God elevates five women to be recognized as, a, as important players in the fulfillment of his promises. That's good news. That's good news. Though Jewish culture often shamed God's daughters, the Bible says those who look to Him 
are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Mm, That's good stuff. Even if you don't recognize it, it's good stuff. But these women, now that sounds good and I I stand by everything I said, but you also got to know that these women weren't named in the list necessarily because they were Hall of Fame believers. You want the gory details? Wow, y'all are mean. (laughs) Tamar, what do we remember her for? Well, if you go to the book of Genesis, you'll find that we remember Tamar for having an incestuous encounter with her father-in-law while pretending to be a prostitute. Rahab was, in fact, a prostitute. Both she and Ruth were Gentiles, and we've already talked about how the Jewish world looked at Gentiles. Bathsheba famously committed adultery with King David, and then, of course, Mary was an unwed pregnant teenager. All of these women would certainly qualify as the black sheep of most of our families. But watch this. But Tamar bore the sons that ensured the line of Judah, the tribe from which Jesus ascended. Rahab, in a moment of crisis, joined herself to God's people when her city, Jericho, was about to be sacked, placing her trust in God and saving her family. Ruth, the Moabite, also embraced the people of God and became grandmother of King David as a Gentile. And it was Bathsheba's son, Solomon, who though, according to custom, should not have been the king because he was not the firstborn, was chosen by God to become king of Israel. And Mary, well, I think you know how her story turned out. Yeah, she was a pregnant teenager. But she, through faithfulness and obedience and willingness and submission, brought forth to the world the Son of God. So you can look at those that list of women and you go, oh, there's some scary stories in there. I'm telling you, you have no idea what grace can do. You have no idea how grace can rewrite your story to bring glory to God. Oh, and by the way, it wasn't just the women who were rascals on this list. Some of the guys kind of cringeworthy themselves. Many of the kings, in fact, fact, who are on the list were no gold medal winners in the history of redemption. Solomon was a sex addict who eventually became an idolater because of it. Rehoboam was a childish, petulant fool. Ahaz, yes, in the line of Jesus Christ, offered his son as a human sacrifice. Manasseh, Amos, Jeconiah... All of them led the people into terrible idolatry that in fact led to their exile in Babylon. And the good kings, the ones we consider righteous, even those guys were terribly flawed. We all know David's story, adultery, murder. But Asaph and Uzziah and Hezekiah, all of those guys, though generally considered righteous, made terrible, grievous errors sinning at some key point in their stories. The list begins, of course, with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Surely those guys were better people. Nope. 
Twice, Abraham, the father of our faith, inadvertently pimped out his wife to save his own skin. How thrilled would you be about that, ladies? Isaac did the same, like father, like son. And then he went on to show favoritism to one of his kids, causing all kinds of problems in that family. Jacob, oh my gosh, even his name indicates that he's a deceiver and a liar. He is always cheating somebody out of something. And you might ask, hearing about these ladies, these men, you might ask, why on earth would Jesus want all this dirty laundry of his family written down forever in the Bible? Would you? Jesus, why would you do that? Surely he would leave us a more G-rated lineage for for us to examine. I was talking to uh, uh, some some homeschool moms one time, and they were really concerned about the content their children were viewing on television. And I said, if you're concerned about that, do not let your children read the Old Testament. Because there's some freaky stuff in there. What can this possibly say about Jesus having come and emerged from such a bunch of outcasts and misfits and losers and broken people? But here's the point. Everything I want to say to you this morning, I want you to realize that the sin of those people is not a glitch in the story. It is the point of the story. The sin of those horrible mistakes, the the, the terrible things that the people did that are recorded forever in Holy Scripture, they are the point of the story. Generation after generation of God's people, though they had the covenants, Though they had the promises, generation after generation of them were tripped up and robbed, and many of them were destroyed by their own sin, their wayward hearts, their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. Sin had absolutely done them in. But all through their history, in the middle of such scandalous Wickedness, all through their history, God sent prophets who called them back to repentance. And those same prophets would reiterate promises of a coming one who would eternally deliver them. Repent, promise, repent, promise, repent, promises. And all these promises, as I said earlier, began in Genesis, and they continued to be delivered all through the period of the good and the evil kings. And they even kept coming throughout and shortly after their sorrowful exile in Babylon. God kept promising. It's all going to be different. It's all going to change. Hold on. Anticipate. Wait. Don't give up. And then, shortly after the return from Babylon, nothing. Nothing. God went completely radio silent for 400 years. Nothing. No prophets. No promises. And this happened in one of the most tragic 
painful times in Jewish history. The Greeks rolled in after the Persians and absolutely desecrated the temple. They hoisted blasphemies to their pagan gods in that holy place. And then after they were done in, the the Romans came in, cruel and oppressive and taxing everybody for everything. Terrible time. And yet the Jews, in their scrolls, still had the recorded words of the prophets, but surely in 400 years, they had to wonder. They had to imagine and wonder at times if God remembered their sorrows. It had been so long. They've ever waited a long time for God. He began to wonder, whoa, do I have a promise here or not? Waited and they waited. And then one day, seemingly out of nowhere, a little probably 12 to 16-year-old girl is minding her own business, going about her day, and a visitor from heaven shows up, an angel of the Most High God, with a message from Yahweh himself. After 400 years of total silence, the angel speaks. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's a pretty good message after 400 years, isn't it? And after all the waiting, all the longing, the time had come. Somebody was here to sit on David's throne and reign over the house of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. And moreover, he would be revealed as holy, literally the son of the Most High God. There was somebody else in the story, though, that needed to be helped. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, finds out this daughter, that has this uh, this young lady has a, has a, a... that they've had a marriage that's been arranged since they were children, finds out that he's pregnant. It says being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he could have had her stoned for adultery, but he resolved instead to divorce her quietly because he was a good man. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear. There's that word again. Told Mary, don't be afraid. Joseph, do not fear. To take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Similar message was given that was given to Mary. A similar message was given to Jesus' earthly hesitant father with this promise. Call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. 
The sins are not a glitch in the story. They are the point. Jesus' name in Hebrew was Yeshua. Or in English, we would say Joshua. In the Old Testament, Joshua was God's choice to lead his people out of their sinful wanderings in the desert and into the land of God's promises. The name Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. Joseph would have certainly gotten the connection. He would have put the pieces together. But Matthew spoke also, not just of the the book of the genealogy of Jesus, but of the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What does the title Christ mean? In the Greek, it's Christos, and and the equivalent is the is the Hebrew word Mashiach, and that means, of course, Messiah. You guys are familiar with the term Christ and Messiah, but what they mean is. God's anointed or chosen one. When in, in days of old, when a king would be chosen by God, we saw this happen with Saul and with David, the, the, the prophet would come and they would pour a horn of oil. They just wouldn't do it like we do in church and put a little dab on their forehead. They would pour an entire horn of oil on them and just cover them. And what, what God is saying, he's saying, see this one? See Jesus? He has been anointed. He is coated. He is covered. He is baptized in my Holy Spirit to do my will. He is my chosen one. He is my anointed one. So Jesus appears. He's the anointed deliverer. But from what shall he save and deliver his people? That's an important question because the Jews of his day thought, okay, If he's the one, then he's going to bring it, lay down the smack down on Rome and give us our land back, give us our rights back. All these other Gentiles waiting in line to take over Israel, he's he's going to dole out justice to them as well. They had, what I want to point out to you is that the Jews had had military victories before. Under David, he defeated all their enemies. And they'd had times, extended times of great national peace and prosperity. But those times never lasted for one simple reason. The people's hearts were so corrupt that they would always eventually break covenant with God through their idolatry, through their sin, through their spiritual adultery. So instead of of battling the fruit of their national heartache, which was Rome and other oppressors, Jesus sets his sight on the root of their problems. He will save his people from their sins. Sin and its conspiring agents, the devil and death, would be dealt with once and for all by the greatest king, by the mightiest warrior, by the most effective deliverer that Israel could have ever imagined. He would walk on this earth and sickness would dissolve in his presence. Demon spirits would shriek and beg when he showed up. The poor and the marginalized would be preached a message of hope. And even the dead themselves would rise. Yahweh himself was here. Not Yahweh's man, 
but Yahweh himself had showed up. Joseph was told that Christ's birth, and we sang these words a couple times today, Joseph was told that Christ's birth would fulfill a 600-year-old prophecy from the lips of Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Think about that for a minute. God with us. Not God distant. Not God regarding us as our sins deserve, but God with us. Comforting us. Forgiving us. Helping us. Accepting us. Relieving us. And remaking us into His image. God with us. And this, this idea of God being present with us is the joy of the Advent season. We all know that this season is not about a fat man delivering toys, but it is about a holy man delivering souls. That's what this season is about. Jesus told his disciples, I want you all to really hear these words from Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and didn't see it. And to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. But guess what? You see it. You hear it. You live in the time in history where all the promises and, and, the, and the beauty of the covenant have been fulfilled. You have been the people that can now, in spite of your sin, in spite of your brokenness, you can look to a, a Savior who saves and a Redeemer who redeems. You've been blessed to live in the time where that which was anticipated for so long has come to pass. That which was earnestly longed for has been fulfilled. Christ has come. And He has completed His work. There's nothing left to do. He's delivered His people. Where is He now? He has set down the man Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, enthroned in righteousness and glory forever. And let us not forget that this Christmas. Don't forget it. Oh, and by the way, don't forget it in January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. Don't forget it. Especially now, let's not be distracted by all the busyness. Who's busy this season? Raise your hand. Oh, y'all are so liars. I I have to call y'all on that all the time. We're all busy. We've got all kinds of things going on. But don't be distracted by that busyness. Don't be distracted by the materialistic white noise surrounding this season. People complain about it. Nothing we can do about it except for this. Instead of getting bent out of shape because you think some godless culture has kicked Christ out of Christmas. And let me just say something about that. What did you expect him to do? I mean, come on. I'd see things on Facebook and stuff where people are so upset because of, of, of you know, they think that, that, that some retailer isn't being Christian enough at Christmas. That's not their job. 
You know whose job it is? It's our job. So instead of getting just get your nose bent out of shape about what what uh, you know some retailers not doing, instead of that, this season and again all throughout the year, be found worshiping. Let me say that again because I don't think half of you heard it. Don't be complaining about the culture. Be found worshiping. Always. In every circumstance. Peter said, don't worry about them, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Man, if you go into some store and you see happy holidays and season's greeting, who cares? Say, Jesus, I'm so glad you're Lord of my life. I'm so glad I recognize that you came, that you came as a baby and you grew up into a man and you had let your precious body be nailed to a cross and you kicked open the door of a tomb and walked out and now you're seated as Lord over all creation. Lord, I revere you as Lord in my heart. Who cares about season's greetings? You are Lord. And don't forget... Don't forget, Caleb has helped us with this a lot in the last couple of weeks. Don't forget that while we live on this side of the cross, we too are still waiting. And let that be an important part of your celebrating this season. We're still waiting. Just as the Jews between Abraham and Christ. But we're not waiting for Jesus to save us from our sins. He's already done that once and for all. We're waiting for Him to return. Hmm. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And He's going to return. He's going to put an end to our enemies forever. He's going to recreate or resurrect our bodies. He's going to reign over the universe from earth eternally as we praise and we serve Him and always beholding His beauty. So guess what? They were longing, we're longing too. Come quickly, Jesus. Come quickly. So today, we're about to gather at the table like we do every week. And I want the table, if I could have my communion workers come, I'm going to ask you to let the table remind you of a few things. I asked you to revere Christ in your hearts as Lord. And so I want you to start that today. If you're going to take a posture of worship for Christmas, let it start today. So close your eyes, bow your heads, and I want to just tell you some things that I want you to think about as you come today. Don't just do this to satisfy me, really seriously. I want you to think about these things, think deeply. In a moment, you're going to eat actual bread, and you're going to partake of an actual cup. The physical element here that you're going to partake of. And as you do, I'm going to call you to remember that Jesus, the chosen, anointed, in an actual human body, fully experiencing human joys, and as we well know, human suffering. And let's remember that that actual body was torn, and it was shattered, and And the blood that filled that body flowed freely for one purpose. To save his people from their sin. And let's not also forget 
that Christ is risen and that he is reigning. Jesus is alive and well and in charge. And beautifully, he's promised to share this cup with us one day in a new kingdom. To partake of this bread in a new kingdom. Traditionally, I've read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as our words of institution. But I want to borrow today from Matthew's gospel account of the Last Supper. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, and he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Can we give thanks for the body and blood of the Lord Jesus? God, I, I thank you that in your marvelous, mysterious plan for our salvation, our redemption, that you stepped into history. You were born of a virgin, laid in swaddling clothes in a manger, Lord, not to be adored in the cuteness of an infant, Lord, but to be trembled at by all the spiritual powers of darkness, all the chains of sin that held us trembled as that baby cried in that manger. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you grew and that you demonstrated your power over and over again against sickness and and demons and death and over false teachers. You showed your power. And Lord, we thank you that when the time was full, when 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 the time was complete, You surrendered your body to be nailed to a cross after being beaten and after being mocked. You surrendered your body to be nailed to a cross where you bled and you gave up the ghost, dying for us so that we might be freed from the burden of the law and the burden of sin. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that as they took your body down and laid it in a tomb that was borrowed because you didn't intend to stay there. Lord, as three days passed, the report began to circulate that you were no longer in that grave, but you had risen. And that you subsequently showed yourself alive to over 500 people, Lord. And we thank you for that, that you are the living Christ. And we thank you that you ascended into the heavens where you are seated on the throne receiving the reward of your suffering every time somebody puts their trust in you. And so God, we give you thanks. God, in a couple weeks, we'll say thank you for things 
that are tucked under a tree, things that have been purchased out of love for us. But Lord, there's nothing that has ever been worth more thanks than you and your precious precious sacrifice. There is nothing that has ever been purchased at so high a cost and given to us in love than your salvation. And we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, meet with us now as we gather around your table, as we celebrate your body, your blood, your sacrifice, your resurrection, your reigning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may come. Well, if you would stand one more time, I'm going to read a benediction over you. I'm just some of the thoughts that the Lord laid on my heart with this week and this message. I wanted to go a little bit different route and just read you a, a summation of the gospel from the book of Titus. And so if you would just place your hands in a receiving position, I'm going to read these words over you and think about all that Jesus has done for you. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And all the people of God said, you're dismissed.